Hey everyone, welcome back to the City of Champions podcast. Proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I hope everyone's having an awesome summer so far. I just got back from a weekend fishing on the northern tip of Vancouver Island for my brother's bachelor party. And that was followed by a weekend salmon arm with the family for the wedding. Went great. Everyone said I do and had an awesome time, but glad to be back here to work and to the podcast and excited to intro today's guests. But first, this episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October 10th. The Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures and where everyone thrives. Supporting the health and wellness of employees is becoming a major consideration for many workplaces, and Alberta Blue Cross wants to connect the dots of what it takes to create healthier workplaces with happy people. So among the speakers is Drew Dudley, whose TEDx talk on everyday leadership has been viewed millions of times. You guys might know it as the lollipop moments talk where he reminds us that we all have the power to improve each other's lives. Go check it out if you haven't. Um, Alberta Blue Cross has designed the summit so that you're not just sitting and listening. You'll have a chance to actively engage with the information, the speakers and other attendees and will come away with a practical tools and evidence-based research you can use, whether you're a frontline worker or a C-suite executive. The summit is at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th, and you can learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is Edmonton Ward 9 City Councillor Tim Cartmel. Councillor Cartmel is in his first term at City Hall, and he isn't showing any signs of slowing down. He's always been fascinated with the way things work and why they're made the way that they are. So this inquisitive mind of his has led to a career in engineering, where he owned and operated his own business for many, many years. His passion for giving back led him to volunteer work where he began, as he puts it, engineering communities. Eventually, this path led him all the way to City Hall, where he is able to help engineer our city and a better world for tomorrow. Now, the counselor was a really easygoing and enthusiastic, enthusiastic person to talk to. Um, I had a great time geeking out with him on a number of different topics, so I know that you're all going to enjoy this conversation with the imaginative and insightful Councillor Tim Cardinal. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Councillor. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for coming down. Hey, no problem. Um, you know, these podcasts kind of like being a counselor, you sort of do a deep dive on a subject for a little bit of time, get as briefed as you can on it, and then and then you just kind of go into the meetings and try and make decisions and conversation about it. Um, so in my in my research about you, what I really liked was your um, critical analysis of subjects and sort of your fact-based uh, approach to things, things like bike lanes, LRT, speed zones, even as recently as the Blatchford district system, energy system. Um, and so there was a, a recent meeting, I think last week, in which you guys were talking about, um, you're talking about streamlining the budget process. And, um, and you said a line, winter is coming. So I just have to know, are you actually a Game of Thrones fan? Well, uh, yes, a Game of Thrones fan, absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, 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 now my vernacular is not very good, I must admit, you know, so I watch it, but it's, uh, 
that kind of it's in and it's out kind of a thing so uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah I really enjoyed that particularly enjoyed the dragon I mean if <laughs> uh, no better way to tear down a building than to fire your dragon up and just wipe it right out I, I, yeah that'd be you know could have used that on a few of these projects yeah exactly yeah. demolition would certainly be uh, expedited in yeah, that sense indeed, indeed. no yeah. it's just a, f- a fun way to kind of start it and it's yeah. all the great thing about these things too is it's humanizing to know that you know you get to watch the occasional TV show is pretty neat um, and you know one like Game of Thrones is obviously relevant to a lot of people so yeah yeah it's uh, it's in the mainstream I guess right everybody can sort of relate to that so yeah. Yeah, yeah so what's going on in your life outside of City Council how's your summer going uh, too quickly frankly <laughs> I, you know it almost feels like it hasn't started yet you know right. with all this uh, with this kind of wet and cool weather you can keep kind of waiting for the heat to hit and mm-hmm. uh, it hasn't quite hit yet but uh, it's uh, it's not quite there for uh, in terms of having a bit more free time, but it's uh, just a week away. So yeah, I'm excited for that. So you guys get a little break in a week. Yeah, in a week we get uh, a four week break from uh, all of the council and committee meetings, and mm-hmm. that's a chance I think that most of us take advantage of to uh, you know, maybe get out of town a little bit, to, uh, you know, get away from the city, get away from all the minutiae of uh, city council and uh, yeah. go and enjoy ourselves a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's funny because people always talk about going in the way, away in the summer, but yeah. Edmonton's such a nice place in the summer. It seems counterintuitive to me, right? Like, it, it is. You know, to me too, uh, it's, uh, there is no greater city in the summer. I, you know, when, we, when I grew up here, uh, we kind of referred to it as the 100 days of summer, right? From yeah. May long to Labor Day. And it was uh, the 100 days in between was, uh, was summer, was the, the best part of the year, right? You know, you'd play softball till 10 o'clock at night and it mm-hmm. still wasn't dark you know mm-hmm. you could still uh, go and uh, maybe grab a beverage on a deck or something like that <laughs> you know so it was uh, it's uh, it's just the greatest it's just the greatest uh, city to be uh, my wife uh, works in the education system mm-hmm. though so she gets those two week those two months off in the mm-hmm. summer and I get these four week uh, this four week break so you're somewhat compelled if you're going to get out of town or mm-hmm. plan anything bigger than it's it's going to be in the summer. Yeah, no, you and your wife both grew up here, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, born and, and raised. And they say that people who grow up in Edmonton fall in one or two categories, either they can't wait to stay for the rest of their lives or they can't wait to get out. So glad glad to know you obviously couldn't wait to stay. Yeah, it's funny. In fact, my uh, my wife has made it very clear that we're not even leaving my house. So it's uh, you know, this is it. This is where this end of days, however yeah. long that takes, is going to be in our, in our current abode. So yeah, yeah. So I imagine renovations run rampant in your household. Then yeah, it's a constant. Uh, it's a constant uh, thing for sure. I was told by a particular unnamed source that I should ask about your uh, back deck and the renovations there. Oh really? Oh well. <laughs> Uh, so it's funny we moved into this home about 20 years ago and at the time I had three little kids and you know the back of my house it's kind of built into a bit of a slope so the back of my house is you know five feet or so off of the ground and and all there was was this set of steps that went down to the ground and I all I could see was my children tumbling out of the back door and you know onto whatever was at the base of that which Mm -hmm. wasn't much and so uh, step one was the deck and uh, we had had we'd built two previous homes, and the deck was never big enough. So this deck ended up being a 
big deck. Yeah. <laughs> and now some uh, 18 years later, it's uh, time to flip the boards and fix the rails and all those good things that go with uh, wood in Edmonton. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's something that I think your generation has that people in my generation mm-hmm. seem to be lacking quite a bit is that ability to actually get things done with their hands and take on projects. And I don't know, maybe that's just because I've never been a homeowner or maybe that's because of my age. It could be a multitude of factors. But, you know, do you see a gap in that in terms of younger people sort of shifting abilities uh maybe I, you know i think it's de- it depends on what you're exposed to you know uh like my grandfather uh you know he had a great ed education so i mean and yet he was one of the uh perhaps one of the best engineers i ever knew he could invent anything he uh he found a solution for all kinds of things that uh uh, you know that he encountered in his life. Uh, uh, I can remember he was just this great big giant of a man, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, he had thirteen children, and my mom was the oldest of of those thirteen. And we used to have this big family reunion out in uh, a wooded lot near my grandfather's home, his childhood home, and uh, it always ended in a baseball game. I and mean, it was always on the May long weekend, right? The beginning of the hundred days, you mm-hmm. know. Well, one day the baseball game was to be had, and no one brought a bat. Mm-hmm. So he took a barbed wire fence post uh, and essentially chiseled it down into a bat. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, so no problem he couldn't solve kind of a thing. And uh, I think I just, I just came to understand through uh, his example, through my, my father's example, that, you know, you just found a way to solve problems. You mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, you, you took it head on, you uh, muddled your way through, you made mistakes, you started again, and, and you fixed what needed to be fixed. So... I don't know that it's a generational thing necessarily. I think it's just uh, uh, it's just kind of what you're exposed to. So, Grandpa was an engineer. What was Dad? So, Grandpa wasn't, but he uh, but he worked for uh, he worked for uh, Western Arch Rib, which was uh, essentially a, a company that supplied supplied these giant beams. You see them in older arenas, you know, mm-hmm. the big curved arched roof. Oh arenas. yeah, yeah, plenty so, of those. Those yeah. are the typical barns. Right? Well, well, you know, so I mean, you go through anywhere in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and then and the Centennial Arena has a bunch of these great big beams, and you know, as often as not, my grandfather designed them. And then on the side, as sort of his uh, side hustle, he would design the community league and the curling club uh, offices that would be attached to the front of it. And uh, he was a draftsman by nature, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know, he did as much engineering as anybody did. But again, he he didn't have that education or that certificate, so. Uh, my father was a teacher, actually, a math and science teacher, mm-hmm. yeah, and, uh, and a coach. Okay. Yeah. And so did that, I mean, that kind of upbringing, did that play into you being curious about civil engineering going to university? What led you into that path? Well, a couple of things, and so certainly I, I have that same sort of uh, math and science uh, inclination that my father did. You know, it's... Uh, it's funny. I carry around uh, graph paper to take all my notes. Right? <laughs> I and, noticed that. And, and line paper is not good enough. It's got to be graph yeah. paper, you know. I'm, you know, so I'm, uh, I'm very uh, right-brained, I guess. Um, uh, so there's a pre, uh, precondition, I guess, to mm-hmm. some of those math and science types of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the engineering, I think, came from our holiday. So my dad was a teacher, and so we would, you know, as often as not, take a, a summer holiday. We'd camp, uh, quote-unquote camp, and we, mm-hmm. but we often went through some of the bigger North American cities, either down to California or out to Ontario. One year we went all the way across Canada to St. John, Newfoundland and back, uh, which was a full summer. How right? old were you at this point? I was, uh, I was 1980, so I was 14 or 15. 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what was uh, the prospect of a summer road trip with your family at that age? Was that a delight or was that just absolutely your worst nightmare at the time? Well, you know, uh, so I, I mean, and I still remember the stats. It was mm-hmm. something like uh, 42 days in a van and a tent trailer. So in a tent trailer, you got to go outside to change your mind, right? right. Like there's, there's no room inside. You get dressed to go to the washroom. Uh, you do all your cooking outside. So 42 days, 11,000 miles. Uh, and you had this all written down on your graph paper, well, I'm sure. yeah. <laughs> So the thing was, though, um, so we went on that trip, and it was, yeah, it was like the day that school got out, poof, we're mm-hmm. out of town, and you kind of roll back into town, and, I mean, I think there was three days, and we're right back into school. So mm-hmm. uh, it was amazing, right? And, I mean, certainly you have those sibling rivalry type things, but we saw the entire country. It was uh, We saw Terry Fox run on oh, that trip. Oh, unreal. Uh, we, saw, we saw so much, you know, and... And the thing about it was, is that you follow this path across the country, mm-hmm. but you know that if you if you went twenty miles on either side of that path, you would have a completely different trip. Like mm-hmm. the, the, it is it is such a vast, massive nation, mm-hmm. and yet everywhere you went, you saw the same flag. So mm-hmm. it was really cool. Have, uh, have you done a trip like that in the last couple decades, or is that purely a childhood experience of yours? No, we did with my children. We did some of that same sort of stuff. We uh, not well the way across Canada. We got as far as I think. Uh, on a Manitoba, mm-hmm. uh, didn't quite have as many uh, days as my dad did. You know, yeah. didn't have, the summers weren't quite as long. But we did get down to California and lots of trips down the West Coast. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So, so obviously from that point, as a kid, you kind of grew up, decided to stay in Edmonton, go to U of A, yeah. take civil engineering for your bachelor's. Is yeah, that right? that's right. Yeah, you know, what was your I, experience like at U of A? Well, it was it was uh, wonderful. Frankly, it was. Um, uh, it was interesting in that, you know, I, I, got, I guess I kind of found uh, a crowd to hang with a little bit. Like it was, there's a lot of people that had common interests, of mm. course, right? And, you know, a little bit introverted, a little bit nerdy, you know, engineers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, that same um, fundamental curiosity about how the physical world around us worked, right? right? You know, and that, that sort of uh, need to understand and, mm-hmm. and uh, need to... Uh, to uh, live in that world of applied sciences. So understand, you know, the, the, the laws that governed our physical world, but then be able to apply them forward to solutions and, mm-hmm. and to share that experience with others was uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you find that was something that was missing up until you got to university? Had you kind of, did, was it like finding that thing that had always eluded you up into that point? Well, you f- like I would find it in places, right? So, you know, I, I played, uh, I was on all the sports teams mm-hmm. in high school, right? But I mean, we weren't very good. It was a small high school, so it was kind of easy to make all the teams. But, yeah. you know, so you you do that for a couple of months and maybe find that, but then, uh, you know, that would, the season would end, that would evaporate and so on to different thing. Uh, you know, to be with this group of, uh, of uh, young adults that are, uh, you know, equal, uh, similarly inclined, mm. uh, but at the same time, um, they want to be there, right? Mm. You know, uh, up until then, you're, you're kind of at school because you, at least in some instances, because you have to be. Right. I mean, you might not love That's, the learning or... You yeah, know. it's the predetermined path yeah. and, and no one really questions it for the most part. You're like, what are you doing after high school? Going to university, I guess. Well, but you have those choices, I mm. suppose. And, you know, and, and when I came out of university, there was tech school like Nate or Sate. There mm. was, uh, you might go and work, uh, you know, in the oil field. Uh, I, I graduated high school in 1984. So uh, that was an option for a lot of people, for sure. Uh, or you were going to university. It, it's, um, 
but whatever you were doing, for the most part, you were choosing to be there. And that was the difference for me going into engineering is that everyone wanted to be there for, mm. for the most part. And right. it was a little bit different than high school, say. Yeah, well, it's certainly different from sort of the, the liberal arts. Like, I went to university after high school just because there was really, that was just the path that was laid out for me. And, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went sure. into business because I'm like, yeah, it'd be great to have a lot of money and, and be Ari <laughs> Gold from Entourage, you know, like something like that path. But after two years of business school, I just thought like, this isn't for me. Like, what am I doing? So right. so I went back to Vancouver and I took a year to college where I took a little bit of everything under the sun and, and happened to sit down in a psychology class. And within five minutes, I was hooked. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is so interesting. It was like finding not my tribe because I wasn't overly involved in the student body by any means, but yeah. in terms of like whether or not I pursue this after an undergrad, like this is so interesting and, and applicable to life that why would I not want to major in this if you have to pick a major? Right. So finding that thing that really jazzes you and mm. makes you want to be there, I guess, is, you know, and, and happens for different times for different people. You know, for me, it happened on those long uh, family holidays, go, traveling through these bigger cities and and different cities, right? You know, you, you go to Vancouver, for instance, and they have ports, they have bridges, they have water, they, you yeah. know, uh, and that's this is where you come from, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, it was so interesting to me to think about structures that involved uh, water. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the bridges we have in Edmonton are more or less flat to yeah. go from one side to the other. You yeah. know, uh, you don't have to worry about accommodating that big boat. You don't... Mm -hmm have to worry about uh, unloading that big boat cranes and freighters and all oh, that stuff, yeah. yeah like it's a whole different set of marine animals <laughs> yeah well yeah there's that too right yeah uh rock mm -hmm. as opposed to what we have here is you know mostly clay and silt so right. um but just like that that how do they do that kind of question mm -hmm. right? where does that road go why does that why does that uh, fit together the way it fits together yeah so yeah it's interesting like I don't think there's a huge percentage of the population that looks at the world and thinks that right like a lot of people seem to just accept things that the way they are and then try to work within those constraints but it sounds like you looked and were curious about oh well if I understand that maybe I could design something better or more effective well, I, I, at, at that age, it was more about understanding how it worked, mm -hmm. you know, and, and why that big, why that shape, why why that shape and not another shape, mm -hmm. or, uh, uh, you know, just how do you sequence it? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was just, I just found it all very fascinating, what the logistics behind it, right? So why, uh, you know, how, why does a, why is a train assembled the way a train is assembled? So many, uh, you know, coal cars and then so many grain cars and then mm -hmm. so many, you know, is, is there a rhyme or reason to that? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, why? Yeah, why? exactly. You know, the big well, why. Yeah. Well, with, with being so curious about so many different mm -hmm. things, I mean, that can be overwhelming, right? Like when you're curious about everything, you're really not curious about any one particular thing, so you don't have a priority. So was there anything that sort of jumped to the top of the list in terms of engineering feats that you were curious about? Well, I ended up being a structural engineer, so it was, it was about buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ultimately it ended up being about buildings, but, you know, civil engineering covers the gamut, right? It's it's about roads, it's about bridges, it's mm -hmm. about railways, Anything it's about to do with transit. Cities. Yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is city building at its core, right? right? All the things that you see in cities, uh, you learn how to do in civil engineering, right? At least, you know, to start with anyway. What's your favorite city in the world, other than Edmonton? New York, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, New York is a fascinating place to me, mm -hmm. you know, and I and uh, that's that's certainly one of my favorite cities, I guess. Uh, 
we've gone back there a few times, my wife and I, and it's it's partly for you know the the Broadway experience. It's partly partly because of uh, all of the history that is there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 partly it's all those buildings, right? Yeah, it's got something for everyone. It for really sure. does. Yeah. What amazed me about New York is that despite the fact that it's overwhelmingly large you can still find kind of a sense of community in certain areas, yeah. right? Every few blocks has their own sort of vibe and you've got the bodega on the corner and you've got, you know, the fresh fruits and all the different things and the restaurants and it, it feels very local for such a for such a monstrosity, if yeah, you will. That's very well put. It does feel that way that you're almost you're not it's not it doesn't feel like a giant city of eight million people kind mm-hmm. of thing. It feels like a series of villages that are, you know, very closely yeah. connected. Right? I guess that's how it kind of developed, yeah. though, right? Like it didn't. Sure. They weren't thinking, "Hey, let's build a giant city." It started as like a tiny little port that they thought was well connected to to North America from Europe, and and then you ever see gangs in New York? I have seen gangs in New yeah, York. Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, to me, that's sort of what I whether that's accurate or not. That's sort of how I envision New York got its start, right? Sort of patchwork communities and, and municipalities that just sort of blended into one another. Well, and it, and it has an interesting history. So, uh, you know, at some point very early on, they, the, the, the uh, planners of the city at some point decided on a gridded system. So, mm-hmm. right, everything north of Canal, I think it's Canal, uh, more anything north of 14th Avenue anyway, is on a perpendicular gridded street. Right. So for a city that's, you know, 400 and some years old, it's interesting that it has that gridded pattern mm-hmm. for most of it where uh, a lot of other cities don't. Well, they had the foresight yeah. from Europe where Europe's every just like an urban <laughs> sprawl in every direction. You can't, no street goes for more than well, two two blocks. It's just, yeah, it's, it's hard to get around trails, unless you have yeah. it me- memorized. Yeah, yeah. My favorite part of that movie was when the firefighters are going to put out the fire on one building and then it caught fire to the one in the adjacent district or whatever and they're like, ah, no, we're yeah. not dealing with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, yeah. It's hilarious to think if that ever happened nowadays. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing that you know New York did in a way is is you know they built a reservoir, they they set aside Central Park as you know mm-hmm. uh, for a way of thinking about preserving some of their green space. They yeah. uh, amalgamated all of these private railroads into what is now the subway system. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's it's a really interesting uh, study in how that that city evolved and and uh, you know came to what it is now. That was a lot of foresight, Central Park. Like, who yeah. who really championed that cause? Do you know the history there? I don't know the exact history, but it was, it was very much a, a, you know, a discussion, as I understand it anyway, a discussion around making sure that they preserve at least some part of the natural uh, environment uh, yeah. in on the island of Manhattan, and, you know, as it was. Mm-hmm. So it's... Uh, I don't know that it's completely pristine, you know, for 400 years, but they've certainly preserved that space. Right. Yeah. It's amazing to think that, like, in today's day and age, there's people who still don't understand the importance of that. <laughs> and back then, I don't know, I'm just making this number of three, 400 years ago, whenever yeah. New York got its start, like, they were thinking about that back then. Yeah. Well, I think part of it was, you know, that that city started with a lot of density right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you know, there's there's certain places where you have uh, you know a front yard or a backyard, but there's a lot of places where you don't, and mm-hmm. then, and so the need for that open space, uh, you know, on the one day a week that you weren't working, kind of a thing. That mm-hmm. I think that was a need that the city foresaw, and so maybe there was a bit more pressure that forced that. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know the exact history, um, but it's certain you certainly see in New York. Uh, a real difference between uh, you know a Wednesday afternoon in all the parks and a Saturday afternoon in all mm-hmm. the parks. Yeah. As someone who's on the urban planning committee, um, 
how do you how do you manage a city like Edmonton that really doesn't have any geographical constraints? I mean, you see New York and Vancouver and other you know port cities that build up because you're limited by how far you can build out. Um, but with Edmonton, it's just planes all around us. So how do you make sure that we don't just get crazy with with expansion? Well, I think it's something that we're learning that we need to guard against. Uh, to some degree that, you know, for a large part of its history. And, you know, Edmonton is a somewhat typical North American city, mm-hmm. a, part, a Western North American city, you know. So, you, you know, you think of Denver, it's pretty spread out. You think of Phoenix, it is enormously spread out. So, mm-hmm. uh, and why? There's no constraints. And so I think that's something that, that we have, uh, that we're learning that we need to guard against. And mm-hmm. that's where this council and previous councils have talked about building up as opposed to out. Mm-hmm. But I think the way we do that is by uh, providing that incentive uh, that makes it as attractive to be, you know, inside the ring road as opposed to outside it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so I think that's where the thoughtfulness needs to come about making sure we maintain those positive environments that are in those uh, those more core neighborhoods. Right. You almost have to protect people against their own sort of idiocies sometimes because they're not idiocy. It makes sense, right? They're like, yeah, I'll sacrifice an extra 15 minutes on my drive downtown every day to just to have a cheaper property and a bigger property, right? And it's just that constant urban sprawl push of, of time versus convenience versus, you know, space. Right. And so how do we, you know, one of those trade-offs, one of those key trade-offs is affordability. And mm-hmm. so how do we, how do we, um, you know, try to keep that affordability uh, quotient uh, manageable for people that do want to stay in the core. I think we do have, uh, you know, quite a number of people that reach that point where they need a bit more space if they're, mm-hmm. you know, if they're starting a family or if they, you know, they simply just want a bit more space. But they, where do they find that? They find that at the edges, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the analogy I like to use is, is that it's kind of like that new arena, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, uh, the highest seat in the arena is the most expensive seat to add, right? That last ring of seats at the very top. That's right. the most expensive seat. Interesting. But it has the least payback, right? Yeah. It, 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 it's going to be, it's going to generate the least revenue in terms of, uh, you know, the admission you can charge for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it's a more price conscious person that sits in that seat, you're not selling as many t-shirts or as many, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bags of chips. So, it, it returns the least revenue, but it's the most expensive seat to service in right. that way, right? And well, I don't I, know if you've seen Oilers ticket prices, but that might not well, be a problem for the builders. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens next season. It, it may just be a problem for the building. But, but, you know, in that same way, you know, the edges of the city are yeah. the hardest to serve. Interesting. Yeah, that and, makes sense. And, but have the lowest value attached to them because of their distance from the core. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's something we need to think about. Yeah, and you've also got kind of competing forces of, like, increased travel time, increased gas prices, but offset by the, you know, potential of autonomous vehicles, right? Like that's that's going to be a killer against the or the fight in the fight against urban sprawl because it's like, well, if I can sit in my car while it drives itself for an hour, I don't care, like I can get work done. That hour commute isn't the same as an hour me driving myself. It may not be as challenging, but uh you know, if, if that leads to a situation where uh, we have more cars on the road, not less, mm-hmm. then we're going to have bigger congestion problems, you mm-hmm. know, and particularly if we continue this um, uh, this one person per vehicle kind right. of, a, of an approach to things, right? So um, uh, I, I think it's difficult to tell where the future is going to hold, but I, or where that's going to take us, you know, where other autonomous vehicles will, uh, will help or hurt, whether mm-hmm. we get into vehicle share that actually... Uh, might mean more vehicles on the road at any one time, or at least, or maybe all the cars are always on the roads, but yeah. but we build fewer parking lots and parkades to store them. Right. Know? So we're not. I think I read somewhere where the 
you know, the average car that is owned, you know, privately owned, is is stationary ninety five percent of the time, which yeah. means we build these storage containers for our cars. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of counterintuitive in that sense, right? Absolutely, um, and they take a you know such a massive part of the global carbon footprint too, just to produce them, then to run them. Like it's it's astounding how inefficient cars are overall. Well, there's an inefficiency in two constructs, in, in, in two ways, I think. And, and, and I think it would be helpful if we started talking about them in that way. So there's a congestion thing mm-hmm. that leads to travel time. And I think our, you know, our, in my view, our most precious resource is our time. Absolutely. You know, and, and uh, you know, time with the opportunity to uh, choose what you do with your time uh, is, is very, very key. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, so the more we take away people's opportunity to choose what they do with their time, uh, you know, I, I think the lesser their quality of life, you know. Mm-hmm. So the more time you spend in congestion, the less time you're spending, right. uh, you know, doing what you choose to do. And even if you are in a, in, a, in a vehicle that somebody else is driving or a self-propelled vehicle or a self-guided vehicle, uh, you know, the fact that you are constrained in this box for the next hour, even if you get to, you know, play in your Facebook with your phone, I, right. I don't know that that's quite, you know, at that level of, of autonomy. And I, I view that as quite separate from the uh, the carbon consumption question. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that uh, technology is going to overcome that in very short order. And, you know, it will will f- discover that way that battery that allows us to store electric energy that allows us to use different propulsion models. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's enough incentive now with our uh, with our scientists and our research. Uh, uh, people in our world that are they're going to find those solutions. So, I think we're, so, we're I think we should approach them in two different ways, mm-hmm. right? You know, there there's the solution to the hydrocarbon consumption thing, mm-hmm. but there's the the question around uh, how do we uh, move about in our built environment and and get our time back? It's right. A, perhaps a different question. Right. And then there's the overlap of the old and the new, right? Right. How do we integrate the two systems? Say, say tomorrow they invented the perfect electric autonomous vehicle. It's like, yeah. well, you're still gonna, you know, how many decades is that until everyone eventually gets one, right? Yeah. Uh, and again, is there an overlay, right? Mm-hmm. Is there something that you, you know, some gadget you can attack, attach to your uh, your gas consuming vehicle that, that connects it, yeah. you know? Uh, uh, and in presuming that there is a market demand for that, then that's probably something that follows along, at least in the interim. Mm-hmm. If you could design a city from scratch, how would you how would you envision the transportation system? Like, what would a perfect system, uh, public transportation specifically, and then I guess private car transportation? But you, you've got no constraints. You've got, got yeah, blank canvas. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I I don't know that it would be particularly different, but I would you know I would say this. So. Uh, this is where technology and connectivity, and this kind of gets geeky a little bit. But, Perfect. But this is where I think that we can take examples from other places where we have interrupted and disturbed the existing system. So, uh, again, I'll speak by way of an analogy. So, our telephone system used to consist uh, generally of a microphone in front of my mouth that is mm-hmm. attached to your ear by wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wire might be from me to you as we're sitting across from each other. It might be from continent to continent, but it was a series of some physical connectivity. That That's where the old switchers came in, right? where they're plugging yep. and pulling, smoking the darts, the old ladies Exactly. We've seen the switchboards, yeah. right? And, and I couldn't talk to you until someone plugged us in, <laughs> right, and connected us together. Right. Well, now, 
you know, and I don't understand that technology completely, but I pick up my phone and I create, you know, my phone creates a stream, mm -hmm. uh, an audio stream that consists of bits and bytes, zeros and ones mm -hmm. that get broken up into, you know, packets that uh, fly through the air to an antenna, follow a cable, maybe they don't, through a bunch of computers uh, and reassemble themselves on the other end in real time so you can hear my voice, but there's no physical connection. Mm -hmm. There is no... Not all of the electrons are going to follow the same path mm -hmm. from my mouth to your ear, mm -hmm. right? Well, our current mass transit systems work like the old telephone system. Right. We all have to make our way to the phone line. Mm -hmm. We all have to get in line on, you know, and travel as electrons down a cable. Mm -hmm. If we imagine our transportation system is actually, you know, a series of packets that can take a multitude of paths to get to the other end, mm -hmm. uh, and you open your mind to that, then what, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about technology and connectivity. And what do we need? We need this, this uh, multitude of pathways to get from A to B. Are you talking about a transporter? You want to yeah. teleport us? Uh, <laughs> break us up in a little bit and send us across? Sure, you know, uh, <laughs> beam me up, Scott. Yeah, exactly. Like and, hey, maybe one yeah. day. Yeah. You, know, I, I, you go first and let me know how that, you know, see on the other end. Yeah, exactly. Does it kill yeah. me and then replicate me or is it actually me going? Too many questions for me. But if, if, but if the vehicle you're in mm. is analogous to a bit, mm -hmm. And, and it's it's not a matter of the path that you're going to take, but the destination you're going to achieve and mm -hmm. connectivity and interconnectivity mm -hmm. uh, that makes use of a, a multitude of pathways. Is that not the answer to some transportation system? Like leave, leave the propulsion system out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, what do we need? Well, we need a multitude of pathways and we need a way to connect them. Connect, right. We need that connectivity. Mm -hmm. We've got that. It's called our streets, yeah. right? So. Uh, if you can solve the propulsion system mm -hmm. and you can solve that connectivity system, maybe we already have the backbone of the transportation system that will serve us right. you know, in the future. Yeah, so I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. You've got a, a million different ways to get somewhere. The problem is that if everyone's utilizing those systems, that it's, it's congestion becomes a problem. So right. that's why you look to mass transit and obviously those kind of things. And I was going to wait a little bit yeah. longer to get into that, but uh, I love this topic mm -hmm. and, and I, I've read that you do as well. I yeah. heard that you used to, on these road trips, you used to uh, give directions to your dad. And you yes, I did, yeah. totally would geek out. <laughs> and, and, and I heard you still to this day, well, when you're bored, sketch highway systems. Yeah, I, I Councillor Henderson sits beside me in council, and I'm sure he finds it rather entertaining. <laughs> yeah, when I'm when I'm <laughs> trying not to fidget, I start sketching intersections. It's, it's uh, yeah, my quirk, I suppose, at least one of them. Are you sitting on some gold mine idea that God, you just no. haven't shared yet? <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, the, but the evolution is fascinating. Like mm -hmm. the, uh, the uh, oh, I forget the name of it, but it's this reverse diamond intersection, right, where you actually, you know, end up driving on the left side of the road. Uh, while well, you cross the you cross over the bridge to the other side of the freeway. Oh, that won't be complicated. That's for brilliant. People. They've done it. There's oh. one in Calgary. Oh yeah. Where yeah. you drive on the wrong side of the road, so you're you're passing people as they go by you on your right. Well, so think of it this way, right? When you're when you get to that interchange, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you're trying to turn left. The people coming at you are trying to turn left, mm -hmm. and no one can move. Yeah. Well, they call that left turn lock. Right. But if I jump to the left side of the road and you jump to the right side of the road, I turn left and I'm not crossing any traffic. Right. Right. So it's this this jump to the other side of the road before mm -hmm. you get to the bridge, mm -hmm. and then now you're on the wrong side of the road on right. the bridge. But all of your movements are very easy. Right. And then for those that are continue on, they cross over again and continue on their way. It's, I mean, it's brilliant, but it's. I just think you have to be really careful about 
allowing people to make silly mistakes. <laughs> like for like I I've been in two countries in the last like six months where you drove on the other side. I've been in England and Australia and I guess New Zealand too. Yeah. Even now coming back to North America when I drive, which is not all that often, but if I'm for some reason if I'm going slow in a parking lot, I for a second forget which side I'm supposed to be on. It, it's bizarre. Like I never thought that would happen, but just having been cross cross pollinated a couple times recently, it's 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 kind of interesting. So this alarms me because I have a holiday plan for Britain later yeah. in the summer and, and I will be traveling on the left side of the road. So have you driven there before? Uh not in Great Britain. No. Not in Great Britain. Have you yeah. driven on the left side anywhere? No. 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 It's it takes like half a day a day to adjust. Yeah. But once you get it, it's yeah, it's like second nature. Yeah. What's weird is when you go to shoulder check and things are on the wrong side and you're like, where's my, you know, where are my blind spots? And and then if you have to drive a standard, which thankfully they're phasing a lot of those out, yeah. then you're re- then you're really hooped. Yeah, you better be a good driver. Yeah. We <laughs> we've asked for an automatic and a GPS, right? Oh, so yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Then you'll be set. Yeah. I was going to ask, have you seen that um it's like a simulation and it shows the efficacy of like increasing efficiency of multiple different highway interchanges. Have you ever seen that online? Uh, I don't know if you don't know if I've seen the one you're talking. I don't know about. if you yeah. get bored and go into a rabbit hole on Facebook sometimes, but someone yeah, posted sure. on Facebook and it, it, it went through, I think like 15 or 20 different iterations of highway interchanges. And it, it was a simulation of like beads going through and it showed the increasing volume that these specific designs could do. Yeah. yeah I'll try and, I'll try and source it up yeah, and send sure, it to you because yeah. you'd probably just totally nerdgasm over that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Back to transportation as it applies to Edmonton. Yeah. So um, obviously we've got LRT and obviously we're doubling down on LRT. Yeah. How do you feel about that in the long run? Well, what concerns me first of all is the is the cost of that, right? You know, we call it light rail, but it's it's heavy. Yeah, you know? Inf- yeah, the infrastructure is huge. It is, and, and uh, you know, so, um, so the investment to build those structures that hold uh, railways up off the ground, or or even to hold them on the ground, uh, is a pretty significant investment. And mm-hmm. you know, just going back to the conversation I was, I was um, previously having here, or the, the conversation we were previously having here about you know making the most of our built infrastructure mm-hmm. in sort of a distributed way, um, railways aren't flexible. You know that it's. Uh, uh, I, I certainly know and believe that we're going to have those mass transit corridors, and mass transit is a part of the future of our transportation system. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt. Even in a distributed system, you get to uh, a place of concentration. You get to corridors, and you want to be able to uh, shift from modes if you have to, right. from, you know, relatively easily. You want to make sure that those corridors are complementary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to give opportunity to people to travel in, in the mode that they want to travel in. Mm. Um, what concerns me, though, with building railways uh, in Edmonton, is the lack of flexibility. You right. cannot, uh, you know, you um, you cannot add vehicles back and forth very easily to that right of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the in, the the input to infrastructure cost is very heavy, mm-hmm. and when we're talking purely from a moving people around perspective. Uh, we can meet those goals and objectives with less expensive modes mm-hmm. uh, that achieve the same goals. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where my concerns come in. Right. So be, given this, the technology we have available to us uh, that's practical right now, I think you're a big proponent of bus yeah. rapid transit. Is that right? It is. and I, Because that allows us a path to migrate as technology mm-hmm. evolves. So, you know, we can, we can build... 
uh, very elegant mass transit systems that are based on rubber tire traffic. Uh, that are that use vehicles that are essentially battery operated vehicles. So mm-hmm. that takes the consumption question of the, out of the equation. Mm-hmm. These are not you know 1960 diesel buses, big smelly <laughs> things that you know that are cold in the winter and, yeah. and you know. How many of our brain cells getting killed because of those? Right. Well, what right, kind of cognitive yeah. impairments are we living with? You know, we all well we we may have that you know that involuntary reaction when we smell those diesel fumes. <laughs> you know. But there's places in the world where they've they've overcome this, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you can find and 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 develop uh, rubber tired vehicles that you know if you were blindfolded and you were put in the middle of them, you would not be able to to distinguish them from an LRT car. Right. You know, they're Wi-Fi enabled. They're quiet. They're energy efficient. They're you know they're they're not hydrocarbon burning vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can emulate. A, a, any a rail-based mass transit system, so right. that have platforms that have multiple doors where people get on and get off, that have mm. their ticketing operation on the platform, mm. uh, and so I'm a I'm a big proponent of this. We could we could take our LRT models and do exactly the same thing that we're doing in terms of routing, in terms of stations, in terms of locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do them by adding a lane to the existing corridors. Mm-hmm. And so you would have something that, first of all, complements uh, the vehicle system that we have, that, we're, that we will migrate away from, but over time. Uh, provide that permanency that people are looking for, mm-hmm. uh, but also provide that mass transit system that is predominant down the corridor. So it's got its own lane. It doesn't fight for room on the roadway. Yeah. It has the queue jumping at the traffic lights. Mm-hmm. It's it's reliable. It's dependable. It's frequent, mm-hmm. um, but it's far less expensive than a railway. Mm-hmm. And and you know that's in today's paradigm. In tomorrow's paradigm, where it's connected, where it's autonomous, what changes? The control system at the wheel. Mm-hmm. And so upgrading our transportation system at that point uh, is kind of like what you're doing with your PC now. And when was the last time? You may not even have ever done this, but I remember a time when I wanted to, you know, update Windows. It was a 10 or 12 or 20 disk, two-hour operation, <laughs> one disk at a time, loading yeah. it into that port of my PC. Right. No one ever does that anymore. Mm-hmm. It updates overnight and you don't even know. Yeah. Well, the transportation system of tomorrow will update overnight and be more efficient tomorrow, and you won't even know. Mm-hmm. So with bus rapid transit specifically, what is the resistance to it? I think it's that paradigm that uh, when we talk about bus rapid transit, we're talking about the 1960s smelly old diesel bus and everybody right. crowded in, and, and the vehicles you know can only take 60 people, whereas an LRT, LRT train can take 600. I think it's... I think it's that reticence, and I, right. you know, there, there's also, uh, you know, strictly speaking, right now today, uh, you would need more bus drivers than you need LRT drivers. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's an operating cost perspective. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then, of course, on the other side, everyone's complaining that there's not enough jobs. It's like, well, here, here solves both problems. Well, for a while, yeah. certainly, right? You know, and then uh, there's no jobs. <laughs> well, then there's, well, there's a migrate. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the, the future of work. That's a whole different conversation, yeah. right? So. Um, but anyway, I think that's part of the reticence is mm. that, uh, but I, but it concerns me that, um, you know, you talk, and I, and part of that operation cost is that, you know, the useful life of a bus is 12 to 15 years. When we talk about the buses today, mm-hmm. and again, not talking about the same vehicles, but even using that as a baseline, uh, investing in a bus rapid transit system vehicle is a 15 year commitment. Mm-hmm. Investing in an LRT train mm. is a 75 to 100 year commitment. Yeah. And we don't know 
what it's going to look like in 15 years, right. never mind in 75 to 100 years. Right. So my concern is over-investing in infrastructure. Mm. Um, we can talk about another project that I championed, which was the Twilliger Expressway, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I changed my thinking on that same basis, that over-investing in infrastructure that would be a, a freeway type of a alignment mm-hmm. back to an alignment that is, you know, technology accommodating that is not an overbuild but you know meets the demand of today but leaves options available for tomorrow mm-hmm. I think that a, a measured deliberate approach that that does that is a better approach yeah it's it's an interesting philosophy and certainly want to touch on the Tawoga Expressway but just before we get off this public transit yeah, sure. sort of rabbit hole we've gone down yeah. um, it, it's what you said makes a lot of sense. Like we don't want to overinvest, overbuild, especially when it's an antiquated technology that can't can't really easily be upgraded. I mean, what could you upgrade about LRT? Yeah. You know, like given all the resources in the world, how much better could you make it with the existing infrastructure? I want to ask you about I had a guy on the podcast last year at some point, I think. His name's Dan Corns and he's mm-hmm. got a company. Do you know Dan? And his company I've met him, yeah. Magnavate. Sure. Yeah. So I just want to know your thoughts on Maglev and, and his concept. Well, I think the concept has got promise, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and this is essentially uh, you know, Maglev technology that's a flatbed technology. It's a it's a the next generation of Maglev technology that's you know, a vast improvement over what we imagine with, uh, you know, the vehicles in Japan and China that are uh, those bullet trains. Yeah. Um, so I think there's promise there. It needs, like any R&D project, it needs development. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs testing and mm-hmm. it needs, you know, scale testing. So right. uh, if and when that is is bench tested and becomes the technology that might be more reliable, might be market ready, mm. then we can look at that. But there's there's certainly ways a ways to go. Yeah, well, they're I think they're just in the midst of building a test track at the Toronto Zoo right now. Right. Um, every like the podcast with him really kind of reframed my thinking about mass transit, and it's an idea that I haven't been able to get out of my head because mm. when I think science fiction, when I think future, and I come from a generation where we don't really ever say that's impossible anymore, right? We uh, my generation always says. Oh, that'll, it's just a matter of time before that. Someone you can show me the most preposterous idea, and I'll be like, oh, we'll get there. Like, yeah. I, I'm sure. Like, someone will do it. Someone smarter than me, of course, and yeah. more, more invested. Um, but when I just think of the ability to move people at such high speeds for such low cost and on a much smaller infrastructure than what we currently have, and then the ability to sort of innervate smaller neighborhoods, and then just as you were talking about... Um, the, the modal transportation of what we have with cell phones and, and being able to take unlimited pathways. Yeah. I started thinking, what if those maglev trains could could be amphibious almost, go off the maglev track and then at the end of the line, go onto the road and then drop people in the adjoining neighborhoods. Well, I so, don't know, I, my brain just went off there. <laughs> well, but so, so first of all, on the brain kind of going off, yeah. you know, I mean, we talked a bit about Star Trek and there's, you know, this, this uh, you know, this, fanciful notion back in the late 60s, early 70s when that show came out about, you know, we'll just take this handheld gadget and wave it over your arm and tell you what's wrong with you. Well, now I can take my cell phone mm-hmm. and wave it over a, a patch on my shoulder yeah. and that tells me where my blood sugar levels are for my diabetes. Right? So that that crazy notion, that, that you know, pie-in-the-sky idea mm-hmm. is reality, yeah. right, because of those those. Uh, you know, scientists and researchers that just wanted to make that work, mm-hmm. right? So, it's. Uh, I don't think we should ever stop thinking about that. Right. But coming back to sort of this this uh, maglev idea, uh, you know, think about it this way. Uh, imagine if that LRT, you know, we're going to build an LRT tr- LRT train from downtown to West Edmonton Mall. Mm-hmm. 
But everyone's going to West Edmonton Mall. Mm -hmm. Imagine if at some point, you know, at 142nd Street or 149th Street, parts of that train kind of split off into different directions. Mm. So one's going to Lewis Farms, one's going up to St. Albert, the other one's kind of going down to Lassard, mm -hmm. another one maybe going to Spru Stony Plain or Spruce Grove. But that train that does not have a physical connection and where the cars can split off can follow those different pathways. Right. right? But yet, in the reverse, they come from all of those different places and connect up. Right. Well, one version of connected vehicles is for highway transport where, you know, you take you take a car mm -hmm. and once you get onto the highway and you're and you're headed for Calgary, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, it joins a virtual train of other vehicles where yeah. you're connected up, some common brain is taking you down there at 120 kilometers an hour. Yeah. And you can open your phone and flip open your iPad. <laughs> and when it comes time to, you know, break off to your exit, you push a button, disengage from the virtual train, mm -hmm. and away you go. It's it's that kind of concept. Mm -hmm. And again, we have a lot of the infrastructure that we need for that. All we're missing is the technology piece, which is not that far away. And is Edmonton, as I understand it, Edmonton's doing quite a bit in terms of being a test place for some of these technologies. I mean, in terms of autonomous vehicles. Is that overhyped at all? And uh, it is. It is yeah. I, like the idea that we have automated vehicles running around our streets. That, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's some testing of connected vehicles and connectivity, mm -hmm. uh, but it's very limited. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that was fun to geek out on that. Uh, <laughs> but I want to talk about you know what you're currently doing and, and how it is that you came from, you know, engineering background to wanting to be a city councilor. I mean, that's yeah. that's a, a bit of a jump. I think maybe I'm wrong, but what was the what was the the connected dots there? Well, so you know, I my dad was a teacher. He's a nurturer. My mom was a nurse and then a librarian. You know, a, a, again, nurturing types of professions. Uh, I can remember my dad. Uh, teaching at a, a junior high school that was yeah, a bit of in a tougher neighborhood, you know. And so, and at the time, there was uh, every Thursday night through the winter, there was a track meet down at the Kinsman Fieldhouse. And so I would tag along with my dad, and he'd go pick up a half dozen kids from uh, the attended this school, and down he would take them to the Fieldhouse just mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, get some, some fitness. I mean, so he was not paid to do that, he was not asked to do that, he just did that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that was, that was a, an early experience of mine. Um, my father-in-law had a 30-year, longer than 30-year experience in scouting. Long after his son exited scouting, he was still involved, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, from, from a volunteer basis. And so I had early exposure to the idea of, of volunteering and serving my community and giving back. Mm -hmm. And uh, did a lot of volunteer work, you know, almost as soon as I became an engineer and, and got into the working world. And uh, then when my wife and I had children, got involved in coaching and the community league and the, you know, all of the things that were going on in our community. Uh, and that was city building in a different way. So yeah. it, was, it was a lot of fun for me to, by day, be you know, designing and managing projects that were building our cities. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I did a lot of industrial work too. So building those plants that, uh, you know, that served our city. Uh, but then come home in the evening and, and build it in a different way. Build right. community, build spirit, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, interact with the city council of the day, uh, interact with the uh, city administration of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this just became a bit of a, you know, the next step in city building. So uh, I'm kind of doing the a similar thing but yeah. just from a different side of the table. Where do you get the energy to do all that? <laughs> you just talked about doing one job all day mm -hmm. and then jumping right into something similar at night. Like, 
Are you a coffee guy? You get a good night's <laughs> sleep? Like, uh, I'm like, definitely a coffee guy. You got to love what yeah. you do in order to be that driven and energized to do it. Well, it, it, it's that the work is energizing, mm-hmm. right? You know, so I, hey, like it can be tough, right? You know, you've got um, pick any issue, pick pick the issue we were just talking about, right? There's people on both sides of that discussion. There's mm-hmm. there's learned people that that are on both sides of that discussion. There are people that are passionate about what they believe in and, mm-hmm. and you know our citizens are passionate in uh, how they might view a project is going to affect their daily lives mm-hmm. uh, on both sides of, of every decision. The privilege is the ability to listen and learn and understand and then have the opportunity to, to vote on the choice. Right. So that's where the energy comes from is, right. is the privilege of being able to do this. What became your business when you moved to City Hall? Oh, it perks along. Yeah. It, uh, it doesn't do very much. You know, okay. I've, I uh, have some people that do some work for me on occasion and mm-hmm. they do a bit here and a bit there. So. Yeah. yeah. Is that something you'll go back to when you're when you're done eventually, whenever that is? Um, well, it, it probably in mm-hmm. some way. Uh, you know, uh, before I started uh, my work as a counselor, uh, people asked me, you know, when would I retire? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I, you know, I would answer that by saying, well, I don't know if I'd ever retire. You know, I'd do some work on the side. I would, you know, do a bit of traveling. I'd play a little bit of golf. I would be able to choose when I did those things. And, right. And uh, that's what I was doing. Yeah. So, you know, effectively, I was retired. I was working eight <laughs> hours a week, but I was retired. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I see that as something I'd return to, you know, mm. as long as I'm able and capable. You know? Yeah. Well, you sound like a guy that can sort of forge your own path and forge the things that you enjoy doing. So that's, that's how it should be. I just can't see a situation where I would not uh, be doing something. And, you know, mm. I certainly... Uh, uh, you know that that service work, that volunteer work, that uh, getting back to the community work. I would happily do that. So, what was something that surprised you when you first started on city council about the job specifically? Uh, well, I I guess it was all the time that uh, that isn't required, and I like I knew it would took a lot of hours, but it's it's I guess something to know that, and then another thing to uh, experience that. So. Mm. Um, uh, and that I, I don't mind that, by the way. But it was something I needed to learn, and you know, and it's and it's not just uh, all the time, but sort of all the time that you're on. So you know, when you're in a council meeting or when you're in a committee meeting, and and it's not just the committees that you're on, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, essentially, if you're going to understand and, and speak intelligently about any of the subjects we're going to deal with at council, you need to be a committee at least, at, or at least you know read the reports and understand what the discussion was at each of the committee meetings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of time invested there. And then, you know, in the evenings and the weekends, you're uh, out meeting your constituents and, you know, doing all of that engagement work that is so necessary to understand uh, the wants and needs of the people that you're representing. So um, not only does that a lot of time, but it it's a lot of time being on and being engaged. And being a lot of mental bandwidth. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, uh, but again, not not that I mind it, but it certainly was something that I it was that was uh, an unknown. What part of the job do you most enjoy? That engagement. Yeah. That yeah. That public engagement. I I really enjoy that. And I, you know, one of my biggest hiccups about doing this was door knocking. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that I would go and go from house to house and door to door and interrupt people's days and say, hey, you know, and ask them for something. Mm-hmm. You know, ask them for a vote, ask them for support. That was. That was really hard for me to overcome, and uh, but now that 
that opportunity to have those one-on-one engagements, those discussions with mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, to understand what, you know, what they need and, and um, have the opportunity and the privilege to actually maybe do something about that. That's by far the best. Yeah, that must have been challenging for a uh, self-described introverted oh, nerd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's still hard. When I get tired, you know, the, the introvert me takes over, right? right. So I, it's like, no, I just want to go and sit in a room and read mm-hmm. a book and, yeah. you know, but uh, well, the saying goes, you know, that which we most need will be found where we least want to look for it, right? Yeah, it's yeah. that, you know, so it's always that seemingly thing that we want to do the least that is what we really need to do the most. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot to that because it, it has been challenging, but at the same time, it's been very rewarding for me. It's, uh, I've really enjoyed that part of it. What's, um, you know, accountability is huge, obviously, in such a public profession. Yeah. Is there an example of a mistake that you might have made? Um, that you owned up to and that you learned a really, really valuable lesson in? Well, I think you learn those lessons all the time. I, you know, I don't know if there's one big standout example. Um, uh, I probably, I mean, I probably said things out of, uh, not quite anger, but out of exasperation. Because you're human and that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, oh, sure. I mean, you know, and and it's in that, it's in understanding that, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I thought, but you know you own that mm-hmm. and uh, you know make amends and carry on you know, yeah we are all human and, and I think we recognize that in each other you know well sometimes people forget right like yeah. there's a there's a high expectation of everyone to be perfect I'm guilty of that I, I have high expectations for myself and sometimes I'm a little hard on the people around me and it's tough to remember that like look they don't necessarily have the same expectations or, or they, their priorities are different or what's important to them is different than it is to you. It's sometimes hard to get out of my own mind about that sometimes. Well, I think we make the mistake of thinking that everybody's experience that got them to this conversation or to this point is is the same. Like you, you lacking any other knowledge, you kind of lay over your experience or mm-hmm. your, where you come from mm-hmm. on the person you're interacting with. And, uh, you know, it, it, it takes energy. It is a mental exercise to... Uh, to stop that presumption in your own mind and, mm-hmm. and really try to openly understand the perspective of the person that is yeah. you know, across from you. Uh, and sometimes I forget that, certainly. you know, It's really amazing that any of us can sit in a room together with other people for an hour and not tear each other apart, right? Yeah. Based on our, our, our different experiences and different values. But it's, you know, a testament to the fact that we, you know, we're, we're such an interesting species and people that, that can accomplish such great things when we're not focused on ourselves, but when we're focused on giving back and helping other people. Well, I, there's a lot to that. You know, um, there's a colloquialism that, uh, know something to akin to that look how much we can get done if no one's concerned about who gets the credit yeah uh that's a bit you know counter to the political environment we live in today you know mm-hmm. uh, and, you know to some degree it's all about the credit and mm-hmm. and so if you're caught up in that uh then are you working to the best purposes of the mission right yeah know, that's so. really interesting because yeah. if if you're perceived by the public to have not contributed very much then they're going to think that what's your purpose or value in that system and you know in a in a cohesive team say a sports team or say a, you know my in my world you know film crew we all know even if it's unspoken we know who's done what and we know where the works come from so there's always that recognition but if you hope to get reelected you've got to get some credit right you've got to, people need to see what you're doing well yeah and 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 so there's a real tension there i mean I hope to be reelected, but I, I hope to re- be reelected because I really like doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 
uh, I enjoy doing this. It is, it is uh, a privilege and a monumental responsibility to do this. Uh, it energizes me. But because of all of those aspects of it, it makes me a better person. Mm-hmm. I want to keep being this version of myself. That's mm-hmm. why I want to be reelected. But at the same time, if I'm driven purely by being reelected, by by uh, you know simply telling people what they want to hear, pandering, or pandering, or or uh, you know, then am I really being effective? So that balance between you know casting my vote uh, on the side of what I truly think is the next best thing that we as a city should do uh, might not necessarily be in the same might not. You know, support that goal of getting reelected. Yeah. That's that is a real test. That's a test of character for sure. Yeah, you yeah. said the word responsibility, and I think that's it's come up lately in in my world as such a such an important factor that is missing in a lot of people's lives. Everyone's focused on their rights, but you know, the 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 couple with that is the responsibility, and it seems like when people don't have responsibility, they they lack a little bit of intrinsic drive to try and get better and try to accomplish things. It yeah. seems like, you know, I think I think there's a lot of people with a, a, a crisis of meaning, meaning, meaninglessness. <laughs> um, and I think that's what's led to a lot of the mental health issues, you know, mm. uh, suicide, addiction issues, things like that, is a, a lack of purpose and meaning, and, and, and those stem from not having responsibilities. Well, I wonder how much of that is, is um, you know societal pressures to to in what in where you find meaning or what is meaningful you know and and uh, and do we need to change some of our uh, or or consider what our value system is that drives that right mm-hmm. so uh, you know we touched very briefly on the value of work or or the future of work okay. I was listening to somebody speak uh, a month or six weeks ago that said you know we might we might be on the cusp of the next step function change in our in our work environment you know from that six day 12 hour a week uh, subsistence based work week that evolved to what is now that 35 to 40 hour a week work week does it does that change now to a 12 to 18 hour work week Mm -hmm. so and when it does or if it let's say it does Mm -hmm. how many will feel less valued because they're working less hours mm. you know how many find value simply in the in the spending the time in the process opposed to you know what else they might do with that time right so uh, you know I and that's very disjointed and, and you know all over the map in terms of, <laughs> of a thought but I, I just think that um, you know part of that that perhaps lack of personal value is because of the pressure that's put on us in, in what to value. So, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, when I grew up, you know, it was it, it was somewhat scripted. You know, it, it was get an education, get a job, mm-hmm. uh, get married, get a home, have a child. And it, and it was, you know, very much... And you nailed it. And, <laughs> yeah, I followed all the steps. No regrets. Yeah. But, you know, but I know people my age that didn't follow the script, were not inclined to follow that script, and uh, have been questioned by others mm-hmm. about their values. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so how much of how much of that is what society does to us as opposed to what we do in ourselves and being comfortable in our own choices? Yeah. Well, constraints can be wildly important. You know, like when, when you have no constraints and when you're aiming at everything, you're aiming at nothing. Right, And, yeah. and it's paralysis by analysis, right? What can am be. I going to do? What am I going to choose? And sometimes I think we have too many options. You know, I think back to... And it's not my personal great-great-grandparents, but I just think the prototypical great-great-grandparents, it's like you grew up on 
the farm and, and you became a farmer. But to go back to what you said about mm. um, people uh, reducing the amount they work, I mean, I, you have to imagine they're going to fill their time with something. I mean, like when when people lost jobs in factories due to automation, there weren't less people working. They just found new types of jobs. Sure. So I think yeah. you've got to, you've got to put some credit to human innovation and and ingenuity. Right. And hopefully that leads to productive work, not just busy work. Oh yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. You know what 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 might we accomplish when we have the time to turn our minds to different things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I, w I just want to circle back because you, you brought up uh, the Terwilliger Expressway and I, I, oh, yeah. I, I, I curbed that discussion, but I, I know it's an important one to you and I, I'm interested in it. So what was the, I forget how you phrased it, mm -hmm. but it was um, not a mistake, but something you might have done differently. Well, my, my uh, having grown up, well, not grown up, but having lived in that community for uh, well over 20 years, it, mm -hmm. You know, the notion has always been that was going to be a freeway. Mm. So, you know, the prototypical freeway ramps and bridges and, you know, wide lanes and, you know, a, mm -hmm. a fast road. Um, and I bought into that fully. You know, and this was the plan. This needs to be executed. And mm -hmm. what's more, it's been delayed. So it needs to be executed now. Mm -hmm. um, but in being challenged about that thinking from some of the things we talked about, you know, the evolution of technology. Uh, the gains uh, in that will come from technology and the uh, effectiveness and efficiency of our transportation system, of mm -hmm. this collision of different modes of transportation. Right. Uh, what ought that corridor look like? Mm. You know, and, and uh, I came to understand that that corridor needs to address the needs of today, which is vehicles, uh, but needs to be able to migrate to the needs of tomorrow, which is going to be more mass transit, mm -hmm. more active transportation, uh, more technology, and more gains through technology as opposed to gains through infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So uh, the fundamental need for an overpass is so that cars' paths don't cross and they don't collide. Right. Technology is going to solve that problem without the bridge. Mm -hmm. So investing in the bridge now uh, is a waste of money when you get 10 or 15 years down the road. I we see. will get to the same place yeah. if we just allow technology to evolve. So mm -hmm. don't overspend, don't overinvest, do what you have to do mm -hmm. in a measured way and allow that migration of mode, that migration of inclination uh, to happen. What's that technology that's going to do allow for that? Well, that vehicle connectivity, that oh, okay. connectivity of the vehicles to the signals, that right. connectivity of, of mode to mode, gotcha. uh, that ability of vehicles to connect, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in an integrated way, but in a in a in a not in a physical connection, but in an apparent connection. Mm -hmm. uh, but also the migration of generations, you know. So people now in their seventies were taught that you know you use a car to get around in Edmonton and. And I don't think they should be shamed for thinking that way. I think they need to be accommodated. Mm -hmm. uh, but over the next 30 years, the, the shift mm -hmm. is going to be monumental. And mm -hmm. it's going to be less about driving and more about mobility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so let's allow, let's not make investments for 50, 60, 70 years. Let's make them for 10 or 15 mm -hmm. and be ready to adjust to that shift. Right. Well, I, I can certainly appreciate your your willingness to consistently question and, and look for at these matters rationally, right? It's so important because as we see with most people, you can get caught up in how things are supposed to be, 
or, or rather how we think they're supposed to be versus how they actually should pragmatically be, right? That notion of, oh, we're not going to do rapid bus because it's stinky and smelly buses from the 60s that we're thinking of, or people in their 70s think that you get in your car and drive everywhere. Um, so it, it's good to consistently try to improve and, and, and question that. So it's good to know that we've got someone on city council, at least one person who's always doing that. Not to say that the other ones I've talked to aren't like that, but, but it stands out quite a bit with you. Well, so it's it's um, trying to consider all perspectives, you know, and and getting away from this idea that, uh, and I you know, I think this is partly where social media becomes such a problem, uh, uh, is this and this sort of polarized environment that we have today is that if I'm right, that automatically makes you wrong, mm. and I I don't believe that for a minute. We can both be right, and mm. if we can acknowledge that each other. Has has got something to offer and has got uh, you know a valued perspective. How we mate those perspectives is is where true good decision making is made. So let's work to, to common solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not focus on why someone didn't do that before mm-hmm. and why that was a mistake. Doesn't matter. We're here now. Mm-hmm. How is what is the next best what use of our time? And that is in collaborative decision making. Collaborative decisions. You know, let's do this together. Uh, and get it done faster so we can all go do something fun. Yeah, it's it's yeah. kind of preposterous to think that one of us is going to be 100% right. You know, chances are we're both a little right. One might be more right than the other, but no one has all the answers. Of course not. It's only working together, hive mind, if you will, that we kind of get to solutions that are the most effective. Well, that's the beauty of, the, of this municipal political system is that it is... Uh, in its most ideal state, 13 minds coming together from mm-hmm. vastly different up- perspectives, vastly different upbringings, different mm-hmm. lived experiences that together are going to offer perspectives. They're not always going to agree before or after the vote. But if you believe that that shared perspective is going to give you good decisions most of the time, mm-hmm. then we as a body will make good decisions most of the time. So uh, it, it's not a competition, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a tick sheet. It yeah. is. It is a decision-making process and I think it's just important to keep our mind open to that I got two more questions for you because I know I've I've run you a little past our hour but um, what do you hope the legacy of your life ends up being I'm not worried about legacy I'm not I'm not here to you know have a statue Mm -hmm. carved out or or uh, you know I I I, if people say that uh, he was conscientious and uh, you know was trying to make the best decisions uh, and contribute to the conversation to, to reach the best decisions that we could in the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's I'm not I I am not compelled in any way by the plaque or the statue or yeah. the bridge. No, it's uh, 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 I just really enjoy doing this and want to keep doing it. Well, one of my favorite sayings is your legacy isn't what's written on your tombstone; it's what's woven into the lives of the people that that surpass you. Indeed. And yeah. so, you know, that's that's how I feel. Is a little bit of if you can make people around you better in one way or another, or make their lives better, take a little bit of, of the suffering out of their lives, then you've done you know you've done a good job in your life. Well, I guess in a different way, I I would uh, off of that say that uh, I think that any legacy I might. Uh, have lives on in my children, right? And so, my wife and I have uh, have had the great good fortune of having three children, and they are wonderful citizens. So, uh, at least so far. So, I, you know, I, I um, uh, if if 
the only thing that someone would ever say about my legacy was that those are really good kids. Mm-hmm. I am perfectly okay with that. Awesome. Absolutely. Because if, if that were the case with everyone and their kids, the world will become an exponentially better place right. generation Absolutely. by generation. Yeah. Which I think for the most part, because I'm an optimist, that I think it has. Right. Um, yeah. Last question. What's your favorite thing about Edmonton that nobody else would say? Oh, my. <laughs> Wish I'd had that question ahead of time. I would have thought about it. Um my favorite thing about Edmonton that nobody else would say. Yeah, your own little slice of like, you know, I really love this about, I don't know if everyone does, but I really like this about our city. Oh, boy. I, I'm trying to think of something that other people wouldn't say, it's I suppose. T- it's, it's, t- t- well, it's tough, it's tough because I guess I asked you not to think about a pink elephant and now you're thinking about, about a, a pink, pink elephant, elephant Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, uh Hmm. I, you know, people might say this in different ways, I suppose. But for me, it's the um, it's the small town nature of Edmonton. Uh, you know, it 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 happens all the time that it's. Um, I might not know the person I'm talking to, but we both know somebody. Uh, and you know, you're it, it's not the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's the two degrees <laughs> of Edmonton. You know, and, and it's the that uh, you know it. Uh, Seemingly, no matter where you go, you mm-hmm. you know you encounter somebody that knows somebody that you know, and I uh, I really appreciate that. I um, you know the Edmonton is remote, uh, and I because of that remoteness, I truly believe that that's what sort of forces us to pull together and support each other. I think that's what's led to our uh, our volunteer nature. You know where we we have more of that in our city than maybe uh, other cities seem to have it it you hear people time and again that come from different places come here and say you know it's just a little different here it's, mm. it's, it, whether it's our community league system or, or that remoteness that forces uh, us to find a way to be compatible um, but it's uh, it's a very comforting place to be most of the time and uh uh, you know, and it's my home. I've, I can remember it when it was the size of Saskatoon and you could cross it in 25 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I love the way it's evolved. Uh, there's no place I'd rather be. Well, that's a great answer. And I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation. So, Councillor, thanks so much for doing this. I, I really, really enjoyed it. That was, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming down. I, uh, I enjoyed it, too. It was a great time. Awesome. We'll see you next time. Okay, take care. Welcome to the outro. You guys made it. Congratulations. Just want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, super appreciative of your, your how do I say this, um, precious time that you spend listening to this podcast. I know you've got tons of things that you could be doing, so it means the world that you're listening to me. One final shout out to the Edmonton Community Foundation and their host show, The Well Endowed Podcast. This bi-weekly show is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink. And in it, they explore the impact of passionate people working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Great goal, if I do say so myself. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. And this podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. Check it out at thewellendowedpodcast.com. That's all for this week. See you guys next time.